The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today it's my pleasure to review a wonderful article uh, published in the June issue on pneumococcal vaccination strategies and update and perspective. And uh, today we're going to be talking to two of the authors, Drs. Charles de la Cruz and uh, Jennifer Posick. Dr. de la Cruz is an assistant professor at uh, Yale, as is Dr. Posick. And both are, uh, in general, they may correct me if they want, interested in lung infections. Dr. Posick is the director of the Ambulatory Care Center and uh, interested in oncologic complications. But today we're going to be talking about pneumococcal vaccinations and it has, uh, in perspective, gone from a relatively simple strategic approach to uh, a somewhat more complicated approach of uh, with the uh, development of Prevnar 13 in addition to our old standard Pneumovax. So I'm going to ask both of them to uh, fill us in first about what they think is the current epidemiology of pneumococcal infection. Is this still as much of a problem as it was decades ago? How significant is pneumococcal infection, and who is at risk? Hi, Ellen. So thank you for having us here today. The short answer is that, yes, pneumococcal infection is still incredibly relevant, and particularly to our populations, but to, to everyone in pulmonary and primary care practice. As we know, pneumococcus is an encapsulated gram-positive organism. There are more than 90 known serotypes of pneumococcus, and that's going to become relevant later when we talk about development and further development of vaccines against it. It's spread by respiratory droplet from person to person, and it's important to know that up to 70% of healthy adults are actually colonized in the nasopharyngeal tract with pneumococcus without becoming ill. When we talk about pneumococcal disease, we're really talking about two different categories of illness, invasive and non-invasive. For the most part, when we talk about non-invasive pneumococcus, we're talking about pneumococcal pneumonia, pneumococcal community-acquired pneumonia. And the incidence quotes about the rates of pneumonia from pneumococcus vary depending on the source you look at, but there are estimated to be around 175 to 200,000 cases a year of pneumococcal pneumonia in the United States, constituting about a third of community-acquired pneumonia cases. And it's important to recognize, too, that that's documented cases, so probably an underestimate given the number of times we're either not able to identify an organism in community-acquired pneumonia or whether inadequate data is collected. About half of those cases of patients with pneumococcal pneumonia will require hospitalization, so a big burden in terms of healthcare resources and costs. And though the overall mortality for pneumococcal pneumonia is around 5 to 7%, the rates are much higher, particularly in the elderly population and in the immunocompromised populations. When we look at, instead, invasive disease, we're primarily concerned with bacteremia and meningitis. 
Combined between these two conditions, there are around 28,000 cases a year, accounting for almost 3,000 deaths. Children under five years and adults over 65 years are the people at highest risk, along with, of course, people with high-risk comorbidities, particularly immunosuppression. In terms of bacteremia, the main source of that is pneumonia, once again, and bacteremia complicates about a third of pneumococcal pneumonia cases, so more than 50,000 cases a year in the United States. It also accounts for 70% of the invasive disease cases in children under the age of two. And even with appropriate sensitive antibiotic therapy, the fatality rate from pneumococcal bacteremia is 15% in adults and up to 60% in the elderly. Meningitis, on the other hand, less common but highly uh, fatal. It accounts for 50% of cases of bacterial meningitis in the United States, so three to 6,000 cases a year in the United States. Fatality rates in the pediatric population are around 8%, but up to 22% in adults. Carl, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that's a very good sort of highlight of some of the uh, importance in the current epidemiology of pneumococcal infection. I think certainly uh, it's still a problem that we face in the clinic. Also, as an intensivist as well, we see patients with pneumococcal invasive disease that leads to sepsis and death. So certainly this is a very important topic. You know, and maybe uh, under, underappreciated as we focus on other resistant bacterial organisms, but it's still very prominent and very serious. And you both would agree that it is incidence and prevalence and its impact warrants the uh, vaccination of millions of people in the U.S. Yes, I think certainly I think as the uh, the population becomes more on the aging category, I think those patients uh, are more susceptible to these kind of infections. And also later on we'll be talking a little bit about potential efficacy of some of these vaccinations uh, and potential gaps of knowledge on these extremes of ages about how effective these vaccines are. It's important yeah. to highlight, too, that we have a population that is living longer, so there are far more elderly in our population. They're a high-risk group. And also, we have more patients who are being iatrogenically immunosuppressed for a variety of reasons, not only with chemotherapy, but with chronic steroids and other chronic immunosuppressants, the TNF agents. So there are a lot of people who are at risk because of management of their other medical conditions. And I know we've been focusing on uh, the U.S., but anything you want to add about the uh, problem of pneumococcal infection outside the U.S., maybe in developing countries or non-industrialized uh, countries? I think in those countries, I think it remains one of the top etiology for pneumonia. And also in some of the countries um, where uh, there's a prevalence and misuse of antibiotics, there's actually also more incidence of sort of antibiotic-resistant strains of pneumococcus. Uh, we ourselves here in the U.S. see high rates of penicillin-resistant pneumococcus uh, along with other antibiotic-resistant pneumococcus. And so I think this is not just a problem for the U.S., and in other developed nations, I think the rates are fairly similar to what we've reported here in developing nations. Data is difficult to capture, but this is a ubiquitous organism, so no reason to believe that it isn't as much of a problem elsewhere as it's documented to be here. So one of the things that, you know, I've always wanted to ask, and now that I have my experts, why was there pursuit of an additional vaccine beyond the uh, the Pneumovax? What does the Prevnar 
add? What what are the differences between these vaccines? What what are we hoping to accomplish uh, with newer versions of pneumococcal vaccination? So I think there's a couple of things to talk about there. To start with, the difference between polysaccharide vaccines and conjugate vaccines. So I'll give a little bit of the history, and then Charles will describe the immunity and also the importance of herd immunity to the development of a more complex vaccine strategy. So the earliest vaccines in the modern age against pneumococcus were polysaccharide vaccines. And so polysaccharide 14-valent vaccine was, was licensed in the 70s and was replaced by the 23-valent vaccine in the 1980s. And it was shown to be very effective against invasive pneumococcal disease, up to 60 to 80% effective in reducing invasive infections in healthy adults, 65 and up, and those with chronic conditions. But there were some gaps there in the immunocompromised communities, and so we'll talk more about that. But that's part of why there was emphasis on development of a conjugate vaccine, and Charles will tell us more about that in a moment. The first conjugate vaccine was the seven-valent conjugate vaccine that was introduced in 2000 and was replaced a decade later by PCV13. It added six additional serotypes, importantly serotype 19A, which had become the most common serotype in invasive disease of young children. And so it was introduced first into the pediatric immunization schedule in 2010 and was then later introduced as an appropriate vaccination strategy for those with immunocompromising conditions. And so I'm going to turn it over to Charles to talk about the immunologic differences between those vaccines and the way they stimulate immunity. So, you know, looking back and uh, looking at the organism itself, the Streptococcus pneumoniae bacteria is quite complex. It's got a lot of virulence factors, and one of the most important ones are these polysaccharide, sort of these carbohydrate capsules that have been identified. And like what Jennifer's mentioned earlier, there are roughly up to 90-plus different types of these capsule polysaccharides um, that have been identified in terms of serotypes two dozen of which uh, have been shown to be important in terms of uh, causing disease and virulence. And so if you look at the capsules, these capsules have the property of fighting the immune system from evading being engulfed by immune cells such as macrophages. And these capsules also dictate how easily these organisms are colonized in the nasopharynx. And so the immunity to antibody response to these capsules have been shown to be the one of the more important protective mechanisms against uh, pneumococcal and pneumococcal invasive disease. And this is what the vaccines are trying to generate in terms of an antibody response that's robust uh, against these serotypes. So if you look back so at the... Is two- the- yeah, I was Go going ahead. to ask is is the uh, polysaccharide vaccine was it inadequate in uh, generating immune response in certain populations the conjugate vaccine more effective why uh, or or are they uh supplementary in their effects and that's actually a very important question, and that sort of helps you a little bit later on to figure out the scheduling of these vaccine strategies that people are trying to recommend. And so the two main type, again, of the pneumococcal vaccine, one is based on the capsule polysaccharide. These are the pneumovax that people are used to. Um, and these are typically good, but typically not terribly immunogenic in the young children or also in 
patients who have immunocompromised state, including the elderly with waning immunity. And these capsular polysaccharide vaccines do not have capacity to generate a good memory response, despite the fact that if you try multiple vaccination strategies using the same vaccine, typically on its own, um, these vaccines are not so great at generating what they call T-cell health getting T-cells, which are immune cells of your body, to provide the right cytokines so that you can make the right antibodies that's more long-lasting and more robust. So the polysaccharide vaccine alone, in, in most people, they're okay. But in some patients, the young and the older patients, immunocompromised, those don't generate a robust antibody response. So now the conjugate vaccine comes into play because by the namesake, they link some of these to a carrier protein. And the carrier protein sort of stimulates the immune response so that they can mobilize the appropriate T cells. And these T cells help with cytokine production, allow the B cells to make the right antibodies. These antibodies tends to be more immunogenic and and more uh, useful in terms of establishing uh, protectiveness. And using conjugate vaccines, specifically in the young and the old, these conjugate vaccines typically are more immunogenic than just the polysaccharide alone, uh, which is why over time you see the development of these conjugate vaccines, PCB7 to start and later on PCB13. And the reason for the PCB13 that came about is because with the PCB7, which was really effective in decreasing diseases in young children, in fact, it actually helped decrease the spread of this uh, bacteria to other age groups uh, and thus herd effects and herd immunity of this vaccine. But what they found was the non-vaccine serotype of pneumococcus started to creep up and cause diseases in, in these folks. And so that's why they expanded the coverage of the conjugate vaccine to 13 serotypes. Uh, maybe you, uh, one of you or both would like to comment on the concept of herd immunity. Uh, I think our listeners would, would like that. Yeah, so actually, uh, as I mentioned, pneumococcus likes to get colonized in the nasopharynx, and children actually are in the main reservoir of pneumococcus, and with some of these colonization rate up to 50%. Some people think that it peaks at age three and sort of wanes down a little bit as the children gets older, but certainly the main reservoir of pneumococcus in the nasopharynx are, are children. And so that's why the first targeted conjugate vaccine, the PCV7, was targeted to the pediatric population. Herd effect refers to the effect of these vaccines and these responses in the community at large and, uh, and how these carriage is changed based on a vaccination in one small population. And the population um, that's targeted initially on the pediatric population helps reduce the carrier stage in these children. And with that, it decreases the transmission of this pneumococcus to other age groups. In fact, one of the earlier uh, conjugate vaccine uh, showed that uh, with the introduction of it in 2000, significant reduction of uh, pneumococcal pneumonia in all age group just by vaccinating kids alone. And uh, with reduction on non-bacteremic pneumococcal pneumonia in infants of 47%, and in adults of age 65 and above, there was a reduction of 54%, even though these adults were not vaccinated. They just didn't get it from their grandkids. So I think this whole idea of herd effect means that if you vaccinate enough of the population, you don't have to be all of the population, you might be able to eradicate or decrease the burden of the bacteria in the community. 
It does raise the issue, too, that when we start talking about studies to look at the efficacy of vaccine strategies, it becomes very complicated when you're looking at the adult population because the strategies implemented in the pediatric population have huge implications for what's going on in terms of disease prevalence and serotype dominance in the adults as well. And so, you know, it, it's really only been a handful of years since PCD13 was fully implemented in the pediatric population, and now we've introduced it into, into routine vaccination in adults as well. And so going forward, it's going to be a little bit challenging to separate out the effect of one vaccine strategy change versus the other, because we've had a number of changes that have come along kind of on the heels of one another. Now, uh, one question I've been waiting to ask is, uh, why are we using both Numavax and uh, Prevnar? Why, why did we not just replace Numavax or use one in lieu of the other? Why are we recommending both at this point? Well, they do complement each other, and as Charles outlined, they're stimulating the immune system in different ways. They also are covering different serotype groups. There's not complete overlap between the two vaccines. And there's been in vivo data that's looked at tighter responses, giving them in sequence. And interestingly, they found that while giving the conjugate vaccine followed by the polysaccharide vaccine boosts immunity, the converse is true, where people who receive polysaccharide vaccine first followed by the conjugate seem to have, there's some evidence out there that it attenuates the immune response, which is part of why there's so much emphasis on the sequence these vaccines are given in high-risk populations and then in the routine vaccination of adults at age 65. So that's the rationale there. But it certainly has made things much more complicated in practice. And we agree with your statement at the beginning of the podcast that this has become very hard to implement in the real world, or challenging at least. Do we have evidence that the currently recommended strategies are efficacious, uh, or are we just making an expert-based recommendation? So it's a mix. We do have data particularly from the CAPITA trial, which is our largest study of PCV13 in the adult population to date. That was 85,000 adults in the Netherlands that were over age 65, mostly age 65 to 75, who were vaccine-naive and were challenged with PCV13 versus placebo, it's important to note. You know, and a number of people in that study had chronic lung diseases or were active smokers, and those are important populations to us. And they were able to demonstrate that the vaccine had 45% efficacy against reducing vaccine-type community-acquired pneumonia from pneumococcus, but more importantly, had 75% efficacy in reducing invasive disease. So yes, the conjugate vaccine is very effective in this population, and it's a population that we've been worried about, the 65 and up population, where we know immunity wanes and immune response to the polysaccharide vaccine was not as robust. But in terms of the question about whether we've had real-world testing of the current vaccine strategy, we do not yet have that. And that is one of many questions that remain unanswered with the currently available data.
So um, who uh, should we be focusing on in terms of pneumococcal vaccine? I know we've said pediatric and elderly. I'm not sure. When I started, most of the papers describing the elderly uh, referred to those above and below age 55. So it's been kind of a uh, moving target. So um, who should we be focusing on and how do you think it should should be done? So let's tackle the pediatric population first, only because it's it's fairly well established in pediatric practice at this point. So they were already receiving the the seven valent conjugate vaccine and have been for more than 15 years now. But the current recommendations for kids are that infants should receive a three-vaccine series of PCV13 starting at two months of age, and then they get an additional booster after one year of age. And there are a number of very complex transition and catch-up schedules for kids who have either received different vaccinations um, prior to PCV13 or who have missed doses, and those are well outlined on CDC online resources. In addition, children over the age of two who have high-risk comorbidities are given additional vaccination with polysaccharide vaccine, and people who fall within at-risk populations include the intrinsically and the iatrogenically immunosuppressed people with functional or anatomic asplenia, but also, importantly, children with cochlear implants or those with cerebral spinal fluid leaks. And so, again, the schedule of vaccination of those highest risk populations gets a little more complex when you're adding in risk factors. Looking at the adult population, the lowest hanging fruit is to focus on adults age 65 and up. This is the largest population and remains a grossly under-vaccinated population when it comes to pneumococcus. And so current recommendations are that all adults age 65 and up who are vaccine naive should receive the conjugate vaccine at age 65, followed by the polysaccharide vaccine a year later. For patients age 19 to 64, uh, there are a variety of recommendations based on other medical comorbidities. So the conjugate vaccine is given early, as early as age 19, for patients who have not yet received conjugate vaccine and have immunocompromising conditions, and they then receive a booster with the polysaccharide vaccine and even an additional booster, and will again get vaccinated with polysaccharide vaccine at age 65. But importantly, too, and this is another population that's probably at this point really grossly under-vaccinated, patients who are not intrinsically immunosuppressed but have certain comorbidities, including common things like active cigarette smoking or alcoholism or asthma or COPD, don't need to receive the conjugate vaccine early. They'll still receive that at age 65, but they're recommended currently to receive an early dose of the polysaccharide vaccine. And then when Yeah, I, I, would, I, I was just going to ask you about that yeah. because I was kind of surprised when, I guess, the current CDC last iteration came out that COPD and asthma were not included in the high-risk populations. And, you know, there has been question all over the years about whether the, how, how really effective the polysaccharide vaccine is, whether, you know, some people have even questioned whether it has any significant efficacy. So I was just wondering about that and what your thoughts were. 
you know, I think we struggle with that too in our own practice, particularly with those two populations, because we manage patients who have more garden variety airways disease and then those that are much more severe. And so what constitutes what constitutes a high or frequent enough exposure to corticosteroids to consider a patient iatrogenically immunosuppressed? I think that's a delicate question. You know, it's certainly very straightforward when you have patients who are chronically on oral steroids. But what about patients who are receiving frequent tapers of oral corticosteroids? And how frequent is frequent enough to place them in a higher risk category? And how frequent of exposure do they have to have before you can really discount their response to a polysaccharide vaccine? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of information on this topic, specifically on the population that you just talked about. I mean, the Capita trial, probably 10% of those patients uh, who are naive from vaccination prior had asthma or chronic lung diseases like COPD. There isn't one big trial or study to show these kind of vaccine efficacy specifically on that population to see how they would do over time, role of steroids and, and such. So I think this opens up new areas of questions and potential research for getting more information. I mean, just by looking at the figures that we've developed and helped simplify things, I don't think there were a lot of arrows there and boxes. And so I don't think that was making it simple. I think hopefully the goal ultimately is to stimulate people in the field to make sort of a better approach into understanding what's really going on in these patients with chronic lung diseases, for example, the ever-growing elderly population with waning immunity. We have no idea how often you should be revaccinating them and um, and how much of this in, uh, uptake of these vaccine strategies will impact in the real world the ultimate disease burden, um, given some of the factors that we mentioned. What strategies uh, do you think from a public health perspective need to be implemented? The last time I looked at this, the rates of vaccination for pneumococcus were relatively low and somewhat low even for influenza, but better than pneumococcus. So what can we do to uh, boost that if that is a public health priority? So, you know, I think you highlight an important fact there that we can refine the vaccination algorithm and we can talk about which one may be more or less efficacious than the other, but the unfortunate statistic that we still come across is that there's a good deal of the population with just basic risk factors on the basis of age who are not vaccinated against pneumococcus at all. And so I think a place to start to focus is to ensure that that at least we are appropriately vaccinating first the immunosuppressed population, so the highest risk population, and that secondly, we're trying to become more competent at routinely vaccinating individuals age 65 and up. And you brought up the issue of influenza, and I think that's an important one because Charles and I both very concerned with vaccination against flu and the ways in which we fall short there. An important thing to note about both of the pneumococcal vaccines is that they can be co-administered with the influenza vaccine. And so flu season is sort of an opportunity to raise awareness about whether people fall into risk categories that should be prompting pneumococcal vaccination and whether they have an appropriate documented history of prior pneumococcal vaccination. You know, yeah, that, that's definitely a uh, an issue that the patients often do not have clear-cut recollection of right. what vaccines they got. 
I mean, at this point in the sort of inflection point and the change in the recommendations, you know, what we're coming across is that most patients who have received pneumococcal vaccination in the past have received the polysaccharide vaccine. And so for the most part, the piece that's still missing out of their vaccine schedule is the conjugate vaccine. But you have to be careful about that because, again, the timing and the sequence of the vaccines does seem to matter in terms of immune response. The other issue uh, is uh, the uh, sort of general popular distrust of vaccination in general has has come up with a number of the pediatric vaccines. And I certainly see that with patients at risk for not pneumococcal disease, but are really distrustful of the idea of receiving a vaccine in general, both influenza and pneumococcus. So I think we have some work to do there as well. So let me ask you if you have any other thoughts before we wrap up. Uh, Anything else you guys want to say? I think some of these uh, discussion hopefully would stimulate folks to think about, you know, potentially how to make this simpler for the public and uh, the providers of patients who are worried about these infections. You know, simpler is better, I guess, uh, with in terms of any strategies. Better for understanding from the patient side. Better uptake from the provider side. We still don't know uh, much about revaccination, especially in the older population as they grow older, um, what happens to your 80-year-old or 85-year-old? Do you give them every five years or not? Or do they need a different type of vaccine that would be longer lasting? Do you think it's worth actually looking at the uh, antibody levels and the antibody response uh, after the vaccine is given? We kind of expect it to work, but usually we have no idea. I think currently the um, antibody opsonization, phagocytic kind of properties in the lab, which they measure, have been a good surrogate to test these vaccines and vaccine responses. And so, yes, I think it'll be good to follow these folks as they age. You know, question is, as PCV13 becomes widely used, um, will there be emergence of new serotypes that's not covered by all the vaccines currently in the market? Or will we start seeing, you know, pneumococcus that's non-encapsulated? Uh, are we shifting the the microbiome, so to speak? And um, and also maybe a better vaccines that um, would just cover all uh, the serotypes that may be better in terms of stimulating, you know, the antibody response in the airways. Um, so I think certainly. This is not probably the end of the pneumococcal vaccine story, and hopefully I think uh, we'll, we'll get to a point where it's a simpler strategy, a more effective strategy, uh, uh, and then uh, less people suffer from this disease. Let me just ask one final question. Why not uh, combine the two vaccines in a single? Is that not technically possible, or is it commercially impossible? I think both are probably from two suppliers. Uh, so maybe one thing is maybe the two suppliers would have to talk together to see if a strategy to come up with one universal um, vaccine. I think what has happened is, but, you know, given the existing prevalence of these vaccines, um, that's how the strategy came, up, came about. It, it, it could be possible that you may have one universal vaccine. There is the issue, though, too, of, you know, presently the CDC doesn't even recommend co-administering the two separate injections for concerns that you're attenuating the immune response of the other. And so, though I don't know for certain that they couldn't be technically combined, there would be the concern that they would interfere 
in stimulation of the immune response. Yeah, I think that's certainly an issue, but, but I'd certainly like to see the data on that because, you know, once you start getting into having patients return and it becomes, you know, it just adds complexity to the vaccination process. So I won't, I, you know, I think I've asked you enough questions for one evening. I certainly have learned a tremendous amount, and I want to thank both of you, that Dr. Charles de la Cruz and Dr. Jennifer Pasek, uh, both Yale faculty members, and demonstrated uh, very sophisticated knowledge and recommendations in this increasingly complex area. So I want to thank both of you for sharing your thoughts tonight and wishing all of our uh, listeners a, a great evening, great day, and happy learning.